Henry Hitchens is an award-winning writer, reviewer, and critic. He has written for The Guardian, The TLS, Financial Times, and Wall Street Journal, and is currently the Evening Standard's theater critic. He's the author of several acclaimed books on language, literature, and culture, including Dr. Johnson's Dictionary and The Language Wars. In 2008, his book, The Secret Life of Words, won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize and the Somerset Mall Award. And in 2009, he was shortlisted for the title of Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year. We're here in London to talk about Browse, the world in bookshops, which Henry edited. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Very good to be with you. So the book is a collection of essays by fairly prominent writers from around the world extolling their love of bookstores? Yes. So I think there were two things to say straight away. The first is they're all original essays. It's not an anthology of pieces that existed previously. They've been specially commissioned. And it was very important to me as a British person to get international perspectives on this. So uh, there are a couple of other British contributors, but we have writers... Most prominent. Ali Smith being a very, very prominent one. But we've also got writers from, for instance, um, Egypt, China, India, Turkey, Colombia, um, the US, somewhat predictably, Germany, uh, Ukraine. I I mean, really, I wanted to go as global as possible. There are some, there are plenty of places that are unrepresented. um, But, you know, we've got the major continents covered. And I just, I was... I was clear that it was. It, it's very easy to think that you know bookstores because of the experience you've got, but these things can have a very different cultural status in other places, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, and I, I just didn't want to get stuck in that hole of imposing a sort of Anglophone <laughs> perspective on the whole, a whole thing. I think it's reasonably successful in terms of the internationalism of the coverage. What was quite funny, though, was quite a lot of the people I approached immediately were saying, oh, I want to write about City Lights in San Francisco, I want to write about uh, Shakespeare and Co. in Paris, I want to write about Foils, I want to write about Strand in New York. And I was saying, no, 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 I want you to write about the bookstore in your hometown or the one that you went to growing up. Because I want that that particularity mm-hmm. of people's cultures rather than that sort of globalised thing of everyone saying, well, of course the best bookstore is Strand or whatever. Mm. No, no, no. And I think we ended up in a situation where, in fact, nobody writes about Strand or Shakespeare and company. Which they is do funny. about City Lights, though, or maybe that was you. That is me. That is me. <laughs> I, I touch on it. My introduction to the book, it, it ranges a bit more widely, and I cover yeah some of those sort of famous ports of call. Mm. But actually, one of the things that I was hoping for was that the book wouldn't be a compendium of anecdotes about famous bookshops. It would yeah. be about off-the-beaten-track kind of places. And very often, the store that really means something to a person isn't necessarily one that's very good. It, there were reasons of geography or some kind of personal sympathy, you know, the the contingency of existence that meant that a particular bookstore was important to a person. It doesn't have to have been very well stocked or very well run. And mm. I think that's rather charming, that sort of, almost that kind of flawed humanity that you sometimes see in bookshops. 
Um, well, there's kind of an, uh, an emotional resonance that, uh, that, you, that a lot of them get to. I think that's exactly right. And I, often when I look at books on my bookshelves at home, I can remember where I bought a particular book. And mm-hmm. that... Each yeah. one has a story, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have a lot of books, there are an awful lot of stories there sort of jostling for attention. But it is interesting how plucking a book down off the shelf that maybe I haven't looked at for 20 years will awaken memories of where I bought it and, and who I was at the, that point in time. I mean, I was Henry Hitchcocks, but I was a younger version thereof with different priorities and enthusiasms. And sometimes the very fact that I purchased a book is indicative of that. It seems to me that your, your bookshelves are a kind of like library of your past passions and enthusiasms, um, but also connect, they, they almost offer you these geographical connections. I don't write in books uh, where I got them, but I do write when I got them. But I'm interested that often I can think, well, it actually, I remember that I was in this particular shop and it was that kind of day and that was the kind of service I got. Uh, it's an interesting little test you can do with yourself. And I think when you buy books online, that's something you miss out on. All the sort of cultural sure. baggage that comes with... I'm not saying I don't buy books online. I do, but I also still shop enthusiastically in physical bookstores, partly for the pleasure of browsing and partly for all the other funny little associations that mm-hmm. come with that. Couldn't agree with you more. In fact, uh, it's a bit like Proust and his Mad Lames, right? So you look at a particular book yeah. and it triggers, for me anyway, and uh, you know, my memory isn't that great, but I, I've got thousands of books mm. and I can pretty well place Every single one of them I can place where I bought it. I don't know why. And I, I'm very keen on the book as a physical object. The, the feel of books, the look of them, even the smell of them. And that's something which in an age of e-readers and, and what have you is, is lost. And I feel that my reading experience, partly in a sensory way, but also actually intellectually, is enhanced by that experience of a physical tangible book and Mm -hmm. the bookstore is like a temple to that you know the sense of intellectual possibility when you go into even a halfway well-stocked bookstore yeah is extraordinary in a way that is never really you know you might have a kind of virtual library of alexandria but it wouldn't feel that monumental whereas you can go into quite a small bookstore and there's this incredible sense of all this intellectual endeavor which is almost you know, engulfing you. Well, you call it the place of furtive self-education. I think that's right. I mean, one of the things I remember very clearly is going as a teenager into bookshops and really having a sense of just what there was to read that I ought to be reading. The sort of the way I discovered what the the literary canon was was by seeing it arrayed mm-hmm. on the shelves, yeah. not by you know, reading some guide to it, but you go to that section, which a lot of bookshops have, where you've got the classics, and you see, oh, you know, here's Jane Austen, here's Balzac, here's Confucius, here's Dostoevsky, George Eliot, you know, on we go. Oh, right, this is the reading list. This is what I have to master. I think it was sort of seeing that arrayed in that physical form, which made me want to study literature, which I then did at university, and... um, that's something that stayed with me. And I think one of the psychological 
effects of going into a bookshop is that oppressive sense of all the things that you ought to read or well, need to read. Even, I mean, I have so many books that I haven't read. So there's this feeling of guilt, mm. but, but not so much guilt either. It's just great to have them there in case you want to just pull down and reference one of them. That's, so that's the yes. other thing. I think the sort of psychological climate of being in a bookshop is quite complex. It, there's a sense of incredible possibility. There's a sense of other people's effort and in some cases neglected effort and all the, all the accumulated history. There's also that sense of so many books, so little time. Yeah. But there is that sense of, of opportunity that, that's there. And one of the things, and this is something that I think a lot of people talk about when they're in terms of bookshops is you go in sometimes you go in with nothing really in mind but sometimes you go in for one thing and you end up coming out with something else and it's something you didn't even know existed one of the great you know if you go and you browse online sure you 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 can it's interesting I said browse because I think online purchasing tends to be purposeful rather than a mm. browsing kind even of though they do have you know if you like this you, you might want to try this they do have that and that sometimes works yeah. but, 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 but it's spoon fed it's not serendipity yeah. yeah and there's an algorithm there which is obviously based on your past shopping experiences but the whole point is sometimes you want to encounter something that's totally different from what you've bought in the past and it's that thing that it's that book that just looks up at you yeah um and there's something about it that calls you and it's it's often quite hard to explain what that is it's not the subject matter it's not the title it's not the design yeah. there's a there's something uh, i think my wife would say that this is a sort of illness but i look at certain books and the book just the books say buy me right. um or maybe they say read me but you know if you're in a bookshop the the buying has to come before the reading not always. You can. I mean, there's lots of bookstores where you can yeah. just sit there and read for hours, and they don't mind. Which is again, uh, kind of a wonderful community offering. Yeah, that's true. And actually, when I you, you reference what I talk about with the furtive self-education, and part of that was sampling things quite yeah. extensively. Yeah. I do wonder though about the way some bookshops have really repurposed themselves as almost places that aren't commercial ventures. They're places that, you know, they're sort of cultural hubs and, and, and drop-in centres. I mean, I that's great, but ultimately their survival depends on people buying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I sometimes think the business has tilted quite a long way away from people actually buying books. The other thing is bookstores these days seem to sell so many things that aren't books. Yeah, but you can't... Uh, I certainly can't criticise them for that. If, if they're able to... St- provide us with those books and they need to augment their mm. revenues by selling pillows or cards or whatever it is or candles mm. Mm. I don't mind as long as they stay open I'm happy I, I agree with you I just think sometimes all that other merchandise ends up swamping mm. the mm. book element but yeah I mean there's a balance to, to strike and a lot of people strike it the classic thing is that is the coffee shop that's masquerading as a bookshop rather than the other way around. You mentioned hub and here are a number of descriptions of a bookstore. A community hub, a haven, a platform for cultural events, a center of dissent and radicalism, a place to disseminate notions too strange or explosive for mass circulation, a means of creating and nurturing coteries of readers. 
Yeah, one of the things I'm interested in is the idea that bookshops can be mustering points for radical dissenting people. I mean, that may, in, in most places in Britain and Canada and the US today, that may seem unlikely. Mm-hmm. But I think there are still other countries where there is much more of a sense of bookshops as places which have a kind of underground, the, you know, the underground plugs into them. Well, and very much so in... Uh, now, it's funny because I interviewed him years ago, but... Is it Andrei Kirchhoff's... No, uh, no. Uh, Al... Uh, Al Aswani, yeah. Al Aswani from, uh, from Egypt. Yeah. That, that's the essence of his, of his essay. It's a sort of a starting point for the protest in the Arab Spring. Yes, or, and there's that sense that sometimes you have events in bookshops where people go because it's a sort of say it's a safe space but also maybe a less policed space than if you did it in a another kind of cultural center and you can have like what well i don't i mean you know you have literally just culture you know cultural okay. cultural community, centers community centers community centers or you know you have places that put on literary events that are quite high profile and the slightly lower profile events that happen in bookstores can be more edgy sometimes you know there's a bit more sense that it's not state approved yeah uh, and i think you know alaswani in in egypt he, he's very clear that bookshops became at a time when egypt was in the state of sort of political upheaval uh, a, a kind of place for radicals and and free thinkers and people who were probably on some level classed as enemies of the state to muster and pull their ideas and their thoughts and actually they perhaps weren't really going there with with any view to buying books but the bookshop has this kind of strangely neutral political status which Mm. actually makes it quite a powerful place for for proper kind of it's the same sort of status that coffee shops had in um 17th and 18th century london the idea that because they didn't have a sign outside saying political debate center (laughs) they actually could be places for quite a kind of free and even-handed and exploratory cultural or political conversation you talk about the evocative smell. I, I like this description. It's almond and vanilla, a grassy sweetness, damp wood, and even a hint of mushroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm never too happy when I pick up a really mushroomy book. And while I wouldn't say that I, you know, travel the world sniffing books, used bookstores have often have a very particular mm. aroma. It's not mm. to everybody's taste. It's an aroma that I think makes me think of the people who owned the books before, you know, in a generalised way rather than a specific way. But obviously there were two very different strands to writing about bookstores, and we've mainly touched up to this point, I think, on new ones, but the used bookstores, which are, you know, sadly in pretty steep decline for all kinds of reasons, are amazing places. I much prefer a used second-hand bookstore, and the reason for that is that it really is a treasure hunt. And uh, I guess about... 20 years ago now, I've got the bug, the collecting bug, first editions, mm. and more recently, fine press, letter press. Mm. It gives you a whole new reason, over and above the content of the books, to go in and search for, you name it. And I mean, book collecting is it's yeah. such fun. I agree with that. And I think what's also interesting is that, you know, used books are often full of 
almost the detritus of other people's lives. I mean, mm. at the most trivial level, that's a little inscription, which sometimes can just be a name, but sometimes is more than that. You, you realise that the inscription is written by someone who's probably dead now, that the, what survives of some moment in their lives is this inscription. But, you know, sometimes I'll find in a, a, a used book, you know, old train tickets, or the, you begin to create a narrative around the book and what its owner was up to, and that's... A, a real pleasure, you know, to find really quite strange things in, in news books. Condoms. Yeah, I, well, yeah. I've, I've a rapper once yeah. in yeah. a in um, a copy of the poems of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which is quite uh, <laughs> apropos. A, apropos. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. But um, yeah, that that that's a that's a thrill. And sometimes it's what you find in a book that makes it interesting more than what the book is. There are all these associations kind of ramify from it but you don't know that until you pluck it down from the shelf and you wonder you, you know very often they think the bookseller doesn't know what's inside either and you find you know the cop the, the association copies copies that belong to someone who means something to you that can be quite that can be quite fascinating yeah there was a little bookstore in uh, rural eastern ontario that i visited or used to visit every summer and uh, the the owner uh, kept a binder full of all of the things that she'd found in uh, in her books as they came in. So yeah, some wonderful stuff. But some people would argue that she shouldn't have taken them out of the no, book. She should true. have left them there. That's right. She's um, she's uh, taking away the thrill of that encounter. I often leave things in my own books so that when I come back to the book, there's that sort of extra frisson of the you know it might be a a ticket or a flyer that I got for something that was, you know, when I happened to be out and about, that can be quite interesting. You think, what was I doing? Oh, look at, look at this weird stuff I was into 17 years ago. That's quite fun. Mm. But I think that one of the, yeah, one of the pleasures of, of used booking is all that extra stuff other than the book. But definitely there's that, that particular aroma. When I step into a, a, a really sort of chaotic, dingy used bookstore, there's an amazing sense of sort of being home, actually. It's quite a kind of animal smell rather than a vegetable smell that it has. But unfortunately, those places have had a, a very rough ride over the last 20 years. And the main cause of that has been the World Wide Web. You know, if I want to buy something particular that's used, I go on, I'm not going to name particular sites, but, you know, there are sites which connect you to people all over the world who will offer you something. You know, you'll be able to get something in the condition you want at the price you want. And yeah. that has really hurt the used bookstore at a time when there are other factors, not least real estate costs and the rates that people have to pay. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, because, or maybe not even a sword, because selling on, uh, on the Abe or Biblio or wherever it is, there aren't that many services available. In some cases, has enabled bookstores to stay open. Yeah. So it's not all bad. I see. Uh, you're right, but I think the problem is, in some cases, it's enabled book dealers to think they don't need to have any physical point of presence, and they can just mm -hmm. do it from mm -hmm. their garage or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. And I'm, you know, the costs of having a physical presence are, are high, not just financial costs, but in terms of you somewhat having to be physically present there, the time you're spending being in a shop that no one comes into, is time you could be spending reading or tracking down books or servicing customers all around the globe. So I, you know, 
it is double-edged. It has it has propped some places up, but other places the proprietors have thought I really don't need to go to the trouble of having somewhere that I open up every day. Mm-hmm. So it's strange because I think for the book collector, in one sense, this is a golden age. It's much easier to find the things that you want for your collection. But yeah, I mean, what's the thrill if you've got enough money? What's the thrill of simply finding the book and clicking it, clicking and then having it mailed to you? Agreed, agreed. I, yeah, I know, but I mean, the thing is, I am sometimes that person. But, oh, so am I. But, but, but there's nothing that beats the excitement of being in a, you know, often quite sort of ramshackle place and finding that book that you didn't know existed but that you're thrilled to find. Is that, that, that is... Yeah. That's a, that's a bit, there's a problem too, though, and that is that anyone can check the prices now of their books and oh look it's worth 80 bucks you know and mm. put the pri- the right price on it mm. so it's more difficult now to find an underpriced book yeah. in these physical yeah. bookstores which was part of the thrill and also the fact that you knew that and other people didn't mm. you're not getting that to the extent that you used to that's true another thing in in britain i don't know whether this is applicable so much elsewhere is a lot of charities now have dedicated bookshops in the high street, which are often very well stocked and mm-hmm. well run. They use volunteers, they might have a paid manager, but they have low overheads, they're not paying the books to donations rather than things they're having to acquire from sales elsewhere. And then they get some kind of exemptions in terms of the rates that they pay. So they're in a very favorable situation yeah. compared to someone who's a specialist operation. And it's noticeable. I mean, they, some of those shops, you know, do very well. The prices are very keen, and that's where you'll find these treasures for not very much. Yeah, money. you yeah. you you get you get some good. I've had some good bargains in those places. Yeah. I've also given books to them, but it's complicated because in in doing that, you're undermining another bit of the business yeah. that you that you love, and yeah. you know, difficult because one's torn between. As a book consumer, what makes sense, and then that bigger ecology of the book, yeah, it's it's complicated. It is, That's all I'll is. say. There's all sorts of feelings that come up when you go into a, a used bookstore. For me, anyway, I often, when I went in for years, I felt guilty if I didn't buy something. Mm. So I just, you know, I would go through there and feel this pressure. I've got to find something, but I wanted to buy something to show my appreciation. You're supporting the place, aren't you? Mm. If you don't, there's a real sense of, oh, if I'm not, who is? Yeah. You quote uh, Julian Barnes here saying that uh, the excitement and meaning of possession to own was to define yourself. Mm. Yeah, I find when I say I like bookshops, people often say, but what about libraries? And, you know, we, we have some fantastic libraries have, have their own problems, but we have still a lot of excellent public libraries in Britain. They've had a tough time of it within my lifetime, but they exist. But there is that... I, I, I feel bad about this because it makes me sound rather sort of like a kind of, I don't know, grubby, materialistic person. But there is something about owning things that seems to add a little bit to your stature. The library is a sort of extension of self. Um, and the individual book that you buy somehow is a tiny... It's like it's like a brick in the outhouse of yourself or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. uh, I 
the, there's the thrill of acquisition, and yeah. then and then there's the the pleasure of the presence of the book, you know, in your home, in your workspace, the knowledge that it's there. People will sometimes say to me, "You're never going to look at these books again. Why don't Why don't you get rid of them?" My response to that is, I I may well look at them again, but also it's just nice to know that they're there in case in case I do. Well, as you put it here, it is on our bookshelves, packed with our purchases, that we find the archives of our desires, enthusiasms, and madnesses. It's nicely put. Yeah, I mean, the madnesses bit may seem a bit uh, sort of um, self-damning, but, you know, I, the, it's quite interesting to look back and realize that one had some tastes that now seem terrible. <laughs> it's a bit like looking at your music collection as well and the same thing applies there because so many people now have an entirely sort of digitised music connect, you know, collection. I don't, I don't think that even sounds as good as uh, putting on a record but there's there's just that sense of again uh, music is a physical object and the rec your record collection as a kind of archive of your your development and your past eccentricities and mm -hmm. um, you know holding on to that is an interesting kind of oblique autobiography almost. I'm just getting to some of some of the lines from from these various uh, these various essays. Uh, Juan Gabriel Vasquez says, years later, the writer Santiago Gamboa confessed to me the profound excitement he experienced when imagining his books beside those of Garcia Marquez. So he's talking to the experience of a, an author in, in a bookstore. Yeah, there's something about seeing your books in a, a shop which gives you a feeling of pride, but also of legitimacy. That, and that's sort of, you know, of course, where you are in the alphabet, there are certain people you're then almost doomed to butt up against... <laughs> You know, for eternity, yeah. for yeah. eternity, um, and uh, that's a that's a strange relationship as well. That you know, you look at your own book, and you always see certain authors very, very proximately. Um, the kind of strange, strange bedfellows thing going on there. But definitely, seeing your your book, it almost makes you feel. It's not just that it makes you feel your book exists; it makes you feel that you exist in the world. Mm. in a way that you didn't before. It gives mm. you a sense that you might, you know, I think you project yourself into other people being in the bookshop and maybe seeing that book and maybe plucking it down and reading it and maybe purchasing it. It makes that seem a real thing. Getting back to Ala Al Aswani's essay, he says it was common knowledge that the police were above the law and that they could even get away with killing innocent citizens. So, you know, the stakes were pretty high there. Yeah, it's, that's something that I think... I wanted to, to reflect that in this book, that there are cultures where the idea of the bookshop as a place of safety has a kind of urgency. You know, here that seems like a rather sort of whimsical idea, but actually there are cultures where the idea of a bookshop as a haven for free, for free speech, free expression... Has a has a kind of sharpness about it. It's maybe a haven, but but it's not protected. It's not literally a haven, but the very fact that it feels like a haven is reassuring, and the fact that you 
recognise that there are probably people there who share your commitment to the life of the mind, to ideas, to free discourse. My favourite uh, essay in the book, and uh, I mean, I love, I just love Michael Derda, uh, because he's such a, a knowledgeable collector, and he brings that perspective to, to what he writes. I didn't want that essay to end. I think the thing is, in compiling a book like this, you start off thinking, who do I really want to be in this, in this book? And you mm. want authors that you admire, of course, but you also want people who you think will bring very distinctive, you know, pungent flavours to it. And because of my wanting to have this plurality of, of voices and international plurality... I thought I could probably really only have one American. Because it's very easy if you're British to think of lots of Americans. Yeah. And I really felt I wanted someone who was, a, you know, I really thought was a bibliophile. Uh, there were an awful lot of contemporary American writers that I admire, but I wanted someone who I really felt wasn't going to, you know, was really programmed to come at this with the same sort of spirit that I was hoping to manifest myself. Mm-hmm. And I think Michael does that. I mean, his his essay here is probably the one of the two or three in the book that are really bibliophile in their whole sort of atmosphere. They're yeah. not about the bookshop as a place for a personal epiphany or something like no. that. Or you know, they're much about the book as an artifact, as as a collectible. And he names names and talks about Conan Doyle. He's written about Conan Doyle and. And just he talks specifically about his finds, and he too, talks about price, which is something which <laughs> people who like buying books are quite interested in, <laughs> yeah. and it's something that often gets left out of the conversation. And while I wouldn't say, oh, you know, I'm a, an inveterate bargain hunter, it's quite fascinating to hear what people pick things up for and what they might subsequently have got or not got for them, and that's one dimension among many but it was nice to have that strand in the book and Michael is the person who's really explicit about that and that sort of that thing you know you're right that that a lot of bookshops now price things very cannily based on the other information that's out there but there are still bookshops that just don't have the time to do that then crates turn up and and things get plonked onto shelves and there are still some bargains to be had and that can that can feel pretty magical. I'll just read out, uh, he says, as a boy, I could lose myself utterly in a book, but now I seem to lose myself only in used bookstores. But quite reliably, however, my heart still leaps with childlike joy at the sight of row after row of old books on shelves. I think there's, there is that thing that reconnects you to the sort of child's treasure hunt. The idea that when you see endless rows of books, or almost endless rows of books, you do think there's got to be something there that's really magical. There's got to be some treasure there. It can't all be scrupulously, you know, pegged to the market values. I mean, there's got to be something. I'm going to discover something. Mm-hmm. That sense that you might catch the bookseller out uh, is is kind of you know quite fun, and there's a sort of slightly infantile, almost one-upmanship that's. Part of that. For sure. Well, bragging about your finds is a big part of being a bibliophile. There's an amusing uh, kind of dialogue that Daniel Kelman engages in. 
and he's talking about this big shop. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it is. Dustman? Yeah, Dustman in Berlin. Dustman yes. in, Ber- yeah, yes. in Berlin. And he, he praises the, the absence of music because it's conducive to concentration and reading. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, a, I'm pretty happy reading with music on, but I don't like music in bookshops. But I, I'd like it to be the sort of gentle hum of activity. There was one uh, essay that I... It was nice. It was quite elegant and nicely... So tied up at the end, and it was, uh, I think it was the relationship with an old bookseller that, and then he, then he died. Stefano Benny. I, I thought that was, uh, that had a lovely, uh, quiet sophistication to it. If you love books and bookstores, you'll, you'll find a lot that's recognizable in this book and a real pleasure to uh, encounter. So where can, where can people get this book? It's called Browse, uh, edited by Henry Hitchings. Browse the world in bookshops, but it's now out in paperback too, is that right? It's out in paperback in Britain, published by Pushkin Press. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a slightly different title in paperback called A Love Letter to the World's Bookshops. I mean, it, it should be quite widely available. It's been or being translated as well into Italian, German, Catalan, Turkish, I think Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, which is great. I mean, that's mm. always a delightful thing when your book takes on these other lives around the world. Quite what the translation might actually be like is something I'm You'll not have really no idea. Equi- yeah, I'm not really <laughs> equipped to comment on in yeah. a lot of cases and never really going to find out. But it's fascinating to see how the books are packaged as well, because that varies a lot. You know, mm. what, what works in terms of design and presentation seems to be very different from place to place. Sometimes I'm quite taken aback by the really sort of idiosyncratic, you know, I mean, I've had books published previously in China, and the jacket design is often very humorous, but in ways that feel quite... The, the, the nature of the humour is quite unexpected. It's not where you were thinking they would come from. Mm. Cartoonish sort of things and stuff like that. That clearly works in that market in a way that it perhaps might not be deemed, you know, the, the way to go here. But anyway, I'm hopeful that the book is, is you know, fairly widely available. Yeah, it yeah. Would be, when you write a book about bookshops, you, you hope that bookshops will stock it. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, that wasn't a cynical ploy. But and, not, and not second-hand bookstores. Let's get them yeah, sold first. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yes. Let's get some revenue for you first. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of books, uh, it, since this was written, you've, you've written another book on... on the great uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson. That's right. So my first book, which was published in 2005, is a book about Johnson's Dictionary. And I've now, 13 years on, written a book which is called uh, The World in 38 Chapters, Dr. Johnson's Guide to Life. Um, The second bit of the title there tells you what it is. It is a, a book really about how what Samuel Johnson wrote and said can be useful to us in the 21st century because he's such a great guide Mm. to so many subjects. An aphorist, for sure, but also an amazing explorer of the dark places of the self and society. And it seems to me that Johnson has a kind of image problem. He's thought of as this rather sort of dusty and archaic figure. Twitchy. Yeah, well, with that he was, but... 
Um, I, without, you know, going to absurd lengths to assert his relevance, which is a word I tend rather to want to shy away from, I just expose, I suppose you could say, the ways in which Johnson has something to say to us mm-hmm. now. And who publishes that? That book is published by Macmillan. Okay, great. Well, thanks for writing this book and uh, sharing your uh, your thoughts on uh, something that's uh, very uh, close to my heart. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. I've been speaking with Henry Hitchings in the south part of London on a beautiful sunny day. Thanks again. Thank you.